Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, my friends, we are in Matthew 18. Turn there, please, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, Joe's going to get some for everybody, apparently. Uh, so just raise your hand. He'll gladly hand you one. Uh, it's a great opportunity to look into the Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity, Lord. And I, I'm grateful, very grateful, actually, for uh, this passage in particular for this morning because of how practical it is. And, Lord, it's challenging at the same times. Uh, and so we do pray, Lord, that as we learn some things, Lord, that you would challenge us and also sort of uh, birth within our hearts or maybe even rebirth within our hearts a sense of your good work and the power to live out the way that you've called us to live uh, because of the work of Christ. And we rejoice in that. So bless us, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off in verse 15. So we're about halfway through chapter 18. And we're coming to a section that, as I prayed, is, I believe, very, very practical for us uh, in the Christian faith. And so I, I think in some respects we can walk out of here and say, now I know exactly what I need to do. I think also, in some respects, we can walk out of here and say, oh boy, now I know exactly what I need to do. And we may not be as excited about going and doing it because it's a challenging thing for us to do. So we'll take some time and we'll consider that. And I want to remind you of the context of things in two ways. The context of this chapter, and then I want to remind you of the context of the entire book. The context of the chapter is that Jesus has just launched into either a series of parables or a series of teachings in which he discussed true greatness in the kingdom of God. He talked about that humility. He talked about the seriousness of sin for the child of God. And then he talked about the extreme measures that the disciple of Christ sometimes needs to take in his or her struggle with sin in their lives. So that's sort of the immediate context of things. Overall, the context of things, we saw last week that we are about a month away from Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus has just gone away with his disciples. He had been building to this point with his disciples where his disciples very clearly said, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. We understand why you came to this earth. You're the Messiah. And then from that point on, he changed his focus amongst them to, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected and taken off the scene, and you guys are going to be in charge of things. I described that as he gave him the keys. Actually, Jesus describes it as such. He gave him the keys to the kingdom. And so we are rapidly approaching the end of Jesus' ministry here, the reason he came to go to a cross, and he's been reminding us of things. He's reminded us a few weeks back uh, of how ministry is to be spirit-led as opposed to being sort of in our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ideas of how to do ministry. It's to be spirit-led. We looked at this idea of humility in the kingdom of God and how important that would be for these guys that are going to be the leaders of the church. We looked about this idea of being without selfish ambition. And today we're going to look at one more of those things that the church is going to need to keep at the forefront of its thinking as it goes on from here. And so that's our passage intro, if you will. Starting at verse 15, it says, Now if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, excuse me, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul would liken the church to the human body. And Paul would write this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Another place in that same chapter, he would write these words, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. So it's not God's design for any of us to be, so to speak, Lone Ranger Christians. 
to just sort of go about life on our own and kind of check in every now and again with people. It's, that's not God's design for the church. His design for believers, the church, that's what I mean by that when I say that, his design for believers is that we would be interconnected with one another, that we would be sharing life with one another, and that we would rejoice with those that are rejoicing, and we would grieve with those that are grieving. Not kind of off on our own, doing our own thing, but intertwined with one another. The church was never meant to be some social club where we have sort of loose interactions with one another and we kind of check in with one another because we have mutual common interests. That's not what the church is supposed to be. Rather, it's supposed to be a body of men and women and young people that are intricately woven together to make up one unit. And so with, the knowledge, with that knowledge in mind, Jesus is going to prepare his followers and us for the inevitable of what happens when people are sharing their lives together. And what's the inevitable when people are sharing their lives together? They're going to sin against one another. And so Jesus is preparing us for that. And he begins in verse 15 by saying, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, you have gained your brother. Obviously, sister sins against you. You have gained your sister. Notice Jesus begins by saying, If your brother sins against you. Now that term, if is actually a word which could be also be translated as when. It could be if sometimes, it could be when sometimes. I think in this instance, it would be much more appropriate to translate it as when, when your brother sins against you. And the reason why I think that's a better translation is because the closer you and I get to one another, the greater the likelihood the time is going to come that I'm going to sin against you or you're going to sin against me. So the reality is, when I sin against you is much more likely than if I will ever sin against you, because we are sinners. Oh, if you would, would you just raise your hand, please, if you're a sinner? A few of you in here, a couple of you. Let me just quickly check who didn't raise their hand, because <laughs> we should talk. We're sinners. Now, for many of us in this room, we're redeemed sinners, but we're sinners nonetheless. Hopefully, increasingly, we are sanctified sinners, but again, we are sinners nonetheless. And so Jesus says to us, when, when you're sharing your lives together, as you're supposed to be doing, and your brother sins against you, go, in and, talk, go and talk it out with your brother. Now, the goal of all of this, and I'm going to say this like 15 times today. You can get a notepad going to see if I do say that. I'm going to say it again and again. The goal of everything we're going to look at today is reconciliation. What's the goal? Reconciliation. Keep that. And so to paraphrase Jesus, he says, go and talk it out. Now notice he says, go and talk it out with him, with him or with her, that individual person there. So this is not an opportunity for us to throw our friend under the bus and gather all sorts of people alongside of us so we can just show how bad that person is and how mean they have been to me. That's not what the opportunity is. This is not an opportunity to air your friend's dirty laundry so that everybody else can see it and see, and by comparison, well, you are a great guy, that guy over there. Oh boy, look at him. This is not an opportunity to cause your friend to feel really bad. You hurt me. And now I'm coming to make you feel really bad and guilty about it. And then if I feel like you've shown enough remorse, then I'll let you off the hook. That's not what this is an opportunity. Again, there's one goal in mind here in all of these steps that I just read, at and we're read about and we're going to look at. There's one goal in mind here, and that is, as Jesus says at the end of verse 15, it is that we might gain a brother. And so again, notice he says, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. So whether your brother listens the first time you come or after a small group of you come to him or her or even after the brother was put out of the church, he eventually turns and listens. The goal that we are never to lose sight of in this entire process is that we might gain a brother. And by that, we're talking about maintaining relationship despite the fact that one has sinned against the other. And we've been looking through the scriptures, we know this, sin separates people. Just as sin separates us from God, sin separates us from one another. But I would add this to that statement, sin separates people if we let sin separate us. And yet you need to catch that. 
Sin naturally will separate us, and it will continue to separate us if we let it. And I think Jesus is saying here, I'll put it in my own words, don't let it. Don't let sin separate you. And so notice he says, if your brother has sinned against you, go and tell him his fault. There's a very key letter not found in that phrase there, and it's the letter S. So he says, go and tell him his fault, singular, not faults, plural. This is not a time for you to get everything off your chest. You've bothered me in so many ways for so long, now I'm going to let you have it. Popeye, where's, where's Charlie Hunt? Remember Popeye? That's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. It's a little inside joke. Don't worry about it. All right, but this is not a time for you to get everything off your chest. It's not a time for you to unfurl sort of the litany of offenses that this person has committed against you. This is the time to deal with this issue and not every other issue. If you have a litany of offenses that you want to get off your chest and that you're wishing to unload, then I'll just say this as respectfully as I can. That's your problem. That's not this other person's problem. That's your problem because you disobeyed these instructions by storing up a whole bunch of baggage over here. This is not the time for you to do that. If you had problems with your brother before, you should have dealt with those problems before. Now, can I please make a quick point? Considering I have the microphone, I assume you're going to allow me. (laughs) Jesus here is saying, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Does that mean that we have to confront our brother or sister every time they sin against us and that they in turn have to do that with us? And I would say the answer is no. Just imagine if every time someone here offended another, uh, was offended by someone here, we had to constantly confront one another. It would be lunacy in this room because we'd just be interrupting everyone all the time and then that would be an offense and we would just keep on going through the process. It certainly wouldn't be a pleasant environment. I came up with this scenario. One person said to another, hi, I'm coming to you today because you didn't say hi when you walked into the meeting room this morning and that offended me. Then the person may respond, well, I'm coming back to you today because you didn't notice that when I walked into the meeting room that I was a bit late and trying to sneak in unnoticed. And that the reason I was a bit late is because I was confronting my spouse for making us late. Because they were confronting the children for not doing what they were told to do. And instead, were confronting the dog for going to the bathroom on the carpet. And so on and so on. Doesn't sound like a pleasant church environment to attend, does it? Proverbs 19 says this, It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Paul would write this, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then he would give some examples of what that might look like. He says, with all humility, with gentleness, with patience. And then for our purposes, he says, bearing with one another in love. Colossians chapter 3, to a totally different group of Christians, he would almost say the nearly identical words in Colossians chapter 3, bearing with one another in love. So just because Jesus says in our Matthew passage that we are to go to our brother if they have sinned against us, does not mean that we have to go to our brother each time that they have sinned against us. Now, I realize that may sound a little bit like I'm contradicting what I said a moment ago about the distinction between fault and faults and not um, uh, accumulating faults and things like that, but I think it'll sort of explain itself out. If we take the entire counsel of God's word, we realize that there is a balance between confronting a person that has sinned against us, and overlooking a person's sin that has been committed against us. That those two are not exclusive of one another, but rather those two work in concert with one another. And and here's how I believe that is. When your brother or sister in the faith sins against you, in that time you have a choice. You can overlook the offense, or you can confront the offense. Now please take notice of what is not an option. You do not have the option to hold on to bitterness. It's not an option that is given to you by the Lord. You do not have the option to plot out and enact your plot for revenge or retaliation. It's not an option given to Christians. You do not have the option to destroy your brother or sister's character by gossiping about them and how horrible they have been to you. And you do not have the option to never speak to that person again, which I think increasingly is becoming sort of the response of many Christians. Well, look, I'm mad at you. I'll just never talk to you again. I won't kill you, which I'm thinking about, but I won't do it because I'm a Christian. 
but then instead you come up with a solution, I'll just never talk to you again for the rest of my life. That's not an option that is afforded to the believer. The options before the believer are to overlook the offense or to go to the person and attempt to, ad- to, attempt to deal with the offense. So how do you decide which to do, overlook or deal with? Well, when we say overlook an offense, it means to let an affront go. It's to determine that you will not hold the offense against the person and will instead forgive the person. That's what it means to overlook an offense. That is the ideal of what we should be doing as we interact with one another, as we're sharing life together and we sin against one another. Why? Because we are, it's an easy one, friend, sinners, all right? Uh, We're going to sin against one another. The ideal would be that we would forgive and we would move on. We'd overlook the offense. That should be the norm. If you can do this, that should be your response when you are sinned against. There are, however, times when the affront is so great and the affront is so hurtful that overlooking the offense is not an option. And what I mean by that is, that is that it continues to remain heavily on your heart, and despite much prayer and much effort to release it to the Lord, the sting just doesn't go away. And that's when the offense has to be confronted. Because failure to do so in that circumstance results in a wedge that is being driven between you and your fellow member in the body of Christ. And if you think about it, if it was a physical body and a wedge was being driven, dividing two parts of the body, that's very painful, isn't it? And certainly not very pleasant. And so it's in that instance where the, the offense has to be confronted. And that's what Jesus is speaking of when he says, go and tell your brother his fault. And so you go in humility, we're told, to go to our brother alone, to share with him, share with her. I'm not going to say it every time. You know what I'm talking about. It applies to everybody. To share with that person how his fault, how her fault has wounded you. And hopefully that person will respond in repentance. That would be the second ideal, so to speak. First ideal is you can overlook the offense and you can move on. You know you've offended a lot of other people and so on. This would be the second. You finally do go to that person. They realize how wrong they have been. They repent and the two of you move on from there. Unfortunately, that ideal does not always occur. And so you've gone to your brother. You've shared with them how the offense has wounded you, how you've tried to overlook the offense. You've doing all this in humility and how it's just something that won't go away. And their response, maybe it's something like this. Well, I don't agree with you. I don't think I have wronged you. Maybe they would say something like, I think you're just being too sensitive. Or maybe they would bring everything you have done. Oh, you're telling me I wronged you? Well, let me tell you the 50 things that you've wronged me. You know, one of those situations. Or maybe they disagree entirely with your assessment. And so you said you did this to me. And you're like, yeah, I did that to you. But that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It needed to be done, and that's why I did it. And so you guys are seeing things differently. And so P, uh, excuse me, Jesus would say here, the next step is verse 16. It says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus doesn't say here, find the three biggest brothers you can find and go knock some sense into the guy. That's not the point of why you bring a few others. Jesus says, if your brother or sister will not listen, bring one or two others with you to talk with them. It's not get a little muscle to intimidate the person into repentance. And it doesn't have to be physical muscle, but now here I am. I'm sitting in my chair, and I got three faces looking at me, pointing down at me or something like that. That's not... Jesus's point here as well. Notice how Jesus references two or three witnesses. It's significant. In verse 16, he says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, as Moses is giving us instructions in the law, he gives us instructions about, if you will, a court case of sorts. And he says this, a single witness should not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he he has committed. Can't just have one witness that comes in and says, yeah, I saw he did it. Two or three witnesses, that establishes the testimony, if you will. And the reason is, is because otherwise you have a he said, she said. 
or a she said, she said, or a she said, he said, or any kind of order of those sorts of things, you have one of the, you have something like that there where one person is saying one thing and the other person is saying something different. And so again, the purpose of the witnesses is not to intimidate the person into repentance, but to authenticate the accusation. And so you will go to this witness, if you will, or a couple of these witnesses, and you'll say, look, here's my scenario. I have, we have this friend in the church, love the person, they did this thing to me, I've been trying to let it go and trying to let it go. I understand I wrong a lot of other people, but it won't go away. And the sting is strong. And so I went to them and I shared it with them. And they said they didn't agree with me. Or they said I was being too sensitive. Or they said I've wronged them many more times than they've wronged me. And so I'm bringing it to you so you can hear my case, so to speak. That is, this is the, prop, uh, the purpose. What's the purpose in mind? Reconciliation. Good, a couple of you remembered. Very good. So the purpose is reconciliation with the other person. Going to these other witnesses here is not to air their dirty laundry. It's not to make them look bad. It's not to punish them in the court of public opinion. The sole purpose is reconciliation. And that's why it's wise. If you're going to go to another brother or sister, and by the way, many of us don't want to even, I don't feel like going to another brother and sister. Let me give another shot at forgiving. All right, and so you may skip the step and go back to the first one here, but perhaps now you're ready. I got to go to another brother or sister. It's wise that you now go to a person that you admire spiritually, a person that you trust spiritually. You don't want to go to a person that you know is automatically going to agree with you. That would be a mistake. You don't want to go to a person that you know dislikes that other person too. Oh, good, I know he hates her too. I'll go to him. And he'll be on my side. Because this isn't about your side and their side, but it's about the Lord's side. And so you want to go to a person that you trust spiritually. And if the one-on-one conversation, it didn't bring about reconciliation, this is the time to go to a spiritually mature brother or sister in the faith with humility. And that has to be underlined throughout this whole process with, humi- with humility. And you share what's going on. Now, when you do that, don't leave anything out. Because, you know, you always hear a story, and it even talks about this in the Proverbs. You know, the, the first side you hear is always right, but then you hear the, I think it's Greg's version, but you get the point. First side you hear is always right, then you hear the other side of the matter, and you're like, oh, boy. You know, I, I think, how about I read it to you? Proverbs 18. It says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So don't leave anything out. Don't tell the story in such a way that you appear to be an angel and the other person appears to be the devil incarnate. Don't tell the story that particular way. Just honestly share what has occurred, how you've already tried to deal with it. And the purpose of this stage now is for the spiritually mature person to sort of process what has been shared with them or persons so that they can let you know if an offense really did occur that needs to be dealt with. Maybe you're seeing things all the wrong way. Perhaps your proximity to the event here or the offense here has kind of blinded you from seeing things clearly. And the spiritual mature person, believer or believers, they can tell you that. And they can explain maybe from an outsider's viewpoint how they're seeing it. And they can help set you straight. Now, if you go to a couple of brothers, sisters in the faith, spiritual mature, and they say, look, I I really don't feel like you've been wrong. I think you should be able to let this thing go that you perceive to be a problem. And you don't like that answer? Please don't go find three other brothers and three other brothers and three other brothers until you finally get someone that says, yeah, let's go get them. You know, I'm in a mood for a good fight. All right, you went to them because you trusted them spiritually as mature people, and so you bring it to them. And then assuming they agree with you, an offense has occurred, it's at this stage that the the spiritually mature person should say this to you. I think you should try and forgive them. And and so you say, okay, I will. And you go back and you try and it doesn't go away. Then if that's not possible, Jesus instructs that small group believers of believers to go to the person in humility. Again, two things in today's study. Remember, reconciliation is the goal and the whole process has to be done in humility. And so in humility, they go to the offending person They speak with them. The goal here is not punishment or anything like that. The goal is reconciliation. We never want to lose sight of that. It's not about someone being in trouble. The purpose is about gaining a brother. 
And so you go to that person. Now, sadly, this group of three might come to the brother, the sister that has offended you, and sometimes that step might not work. And so look at verse 17. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the third step, if reconciliation hasn't occurred, is for the group of you to bring the matter to the church. And I would suggest to you that's a reference to the church leadership. So that the church leadership can decide, no, this is not an offense. In that case, they would say, look, this, I know there's four of you, and it seems like strength in numbers, but you're all wrong, the four of you. You're missing the point here. No, you know, there's no offense that has been taken place. The church can, leadership can do that. Or they can say, you know what, this is an offense. And the person is sinning against you by not confessing their sin the first time, not confessing their sin the second time, and so the church leadership can then get involved. Again, for what purpose? Thank you, Jim, and the rest of you, for reconciliation. So we're not at this point of, oh, good, let's get him. This guy's been asking for a bruising for so long, and now we're finally going to give it to him. The whole purpose here is perhaps with a little authority entering into the equation, the person will say, you know what? I knew it when the first person came to me, but I was just hard of heart. I give, I repent, let reconciliation take place. Now, if that doesn't happen, then the person is to be disciplined by the church. As it says here in Jesus' words, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, we don't use terms like the Gentile anymore. Most of us don't like the tax collector, so we know what that means. I'm just teasing. Uh, but how are we to treat a Gentile and a tax collector? Remember, the Gentile, this is sort of a generic term, refer to those that don't know God. They weren't in sort of that Jewish faith where they kind of grew up understanding that there was a God in heaven. So that's by the Gentiles is those that don't know God. Tax collectors were sort of, we've looked at it times in the past, they were sort of the worst of the worst of society, sinners and so on. The, the rabbis, the religious leaders made it very clear, you don't know God, you have no relationship with him. And their thinking was sort of like, well, if I have no relationship with God, I might as well live it up here on the earth. And so they became kind of a wild bunch of people. And so he says, treat them, let's just change the word, treat them as unbelievers. So how are we to treat unbelievers? Well, we are to treat unbelievers with love and with mercy, sort of with understanding, because there's a lot of sins I don't do because I have a relationship with Christ. And he puts a conviction on my heart that is so strong that it's not pleasant to sin. And so I would love to do the sin, but it's not pleasant for me to do the sin because God is working in my hearts. I understand the unbeliever goes to sin because they don't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So we treat them with mercy. We treat them with love. We treat them with understanding. And what is our goal? Our goal is hopefully to win them to Christ so that when they come to Christ, they'll repent and the two of you will be reconciled with one another, which again is our whole goal in this process. And so there's these steps that need to take place when your brother sins against you. Now, let's continue. Verse 18, we read this. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, oftentimes this vote is quoted as sort of a standalone verse. It's just sort of thrown out there without the context of things. And when it's quoted, oftentimes it's used in reference to prayer. But the context of things, this doesn't really have to do with prayer here in verse 18. We move in that direction in verse 19. But the context, however, has nothing to do with prayer. When Jesus is speaking of binding and loosening things on earth, I would suggest he's referring back to what we saw in Matthew 16, verse 19. Matthew 16, 19 is when you recall that the disciples confessed that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. I described it as sort of the apex of Jesus' ministry. And based on that, Jesus then proceeded to give the disciples, as I began today, the keys to the kingdom. He said, you guys are going to be in charge of the church. And this is what he said in 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice that. Whatever you bind shall be bound. Whatever you loose shall be loosened. The context of both of those locations, here in 18, there in chapter 16, is the authority of the church. And in this case, the authority of the church to confront a person for their unrepentance and take appropriate measures. Fellowship 
within the body of Christ, which is the church, is a blessing. And it's a blessing that is enjoyed by those willing to take the necessary steps to maintain that fellowship. And some of those necessary steps are a willingness to offer forgiveness and pursue reconciliation when we have been wronged, and a willingness to confess our sins when we ourselves have wronged another. Fellowship within the body of Christ is a great privilege that we enjoy as followers of Christ. And so Jesus now will give an example of that great privilege. Look at verse 19. Now he talks about prayer. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now he brings up the issue of prayer, that a privilege of being a follower of Christ and part of the body of Christ is the the ability to come to him in prayer and see him work through those prayers. Notice what happens when two of you agree. Agree. Failure to reconcile over any matter breaks agreement, and it forfeits the privilege of watching God work through our prayers. And so as a follower of Christ, you don't want to forfeit that privilege through the hardness of your heart, because it's just not worth it, is it? I'm not giving that away because you wronged me in some way. This is a privilege that Christ himself has given me, that I can agree with my other brothers and sisters in the faith, and I can go before the throne of heaven where God himself lives and exists, and I can present my request to him. You want me to forfeit that because you didn't say hi to me when I came walking in the room? I'm not forfeiting that. And so I'm going to reconcile with you. Now, can I just say a couple quick words about prayer? I don't think prayer is really the purpose of these verses or the ones to follow. I think it's an example that Jesus used designed to drive home this point of forgiveness and reconciliation. However, Jesus does bring up prayer, and so I think we can make a couple of comments. Number one, our prayers are powerful. So notice, Jesus says, if two or three, or if two of you, I should say, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. Our prayers are powerful, powerful. And yet, how often as believers, we neglect prayer. I find in my life, it's much easier for me to sit and read something because at the end of that time, I feel like I've accomplished, I've read a chapter. I've read this part of a book. I've read this book in the Bible or whatever. I feel like I've accomplished something. I can check it off. And prayer is something that we kind of just put off to the side. Prayers are powerful. Don't neglect that. Secondly, it's important for us to understand about prayers is that our prayers need to be according to God's will. God's not going to answer prayers that are outside of his will. And so in 1 John chapter 5, we read this, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so there's a balance between if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them, and 1 John chapter 5, if we ask anything according to his will. And so God's not going to answer a prayer that is outside of his will. But if we're assuming the prayers are according to his will, then it is a great privilege for us to join together and petition him. First point about prayer. Second point about prayer that we learn from this passage in verse 20, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Now surely the Lord is more there if two or three hundred are gathered in his name, right? It's not what it says. Thank you, Barb. She said, what's the matter with that guy up there? He's losing his mind. Not according to this verse. So you may not think that there's much happening when just a couple of you gather, but rest assured, surely Jesus is there with you, even when it's just a couple of you. So prayer is powerful, and don't neglect the privilege of prayer. Let's go on to verse 21. Beginning in verse 21, we read this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. I know some of your versions say 70 times seven, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Continuing, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle account with his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him 
and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused. And he went and he put the man in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we we have this topic of forgiveness and reconciliation that's sort of swirling around. And Peter maybe sees it as a good opportunity. He says, you know what, I've been thinking something. And so now seems like a good time. I'll ask the question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times. Now the rabbis in Peter's day taught that it was the obligation of a good religious person to forgive a person three times for an offense that was committed against them. Three times. Peter likely thinks, you know, man, I'm doubling the number and even adding one. He probably thinks he's magnanimous here. He says, is seven times an appropriate amount that I have to forgive a person? And imagine his surprise when Jesus comes back to him and says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I know that a number of your versions will say 70 times 7. That's 490 times. You like that? I paid attention in math class. All right. There's a big difference between 77 and 490. So which one is it? Well, the problem is this. In the Hebrew scriptures, and I may have the order backwards. Um, Forgive me. Uh, Please, if I offend you, please forgive me or whatever. I may have the order backwards, but you'll get the point of what I'm trying to say. In the Old Testament, there's a verse in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, where Lamech is going to be judged for his sin. And it talks about there that the judgment will be 77-fold. I think Jesus is referring back to that here. Now, in the he- when it's written in the Hebrew, it, I think it says 77. Again, it may be the opposite, 70 times 7. But in the Hebrew, I believe it's 77-fold, it says there. A time came in the history of the Jewish people when they were taken off into captivity and they were no longer familiar with the Hebrew language. And so for them to have access to their scriptures, it had to be converted into a language that they were familiar with. It was converted into the Greek language right around. uh, It doesn't matter. It, It was converted into the Greek language. That's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint version of the interpretation of the Hebrew, There it says 70 times 7, or it says the opposite of what the Hebrew one does. And so you have both of those that are floating out there. So it's either 77 times or it's 490 times. And again, you hear that and you say, well, that's a big difference. Which one is it? That's not the point. The point that Jesus is making that we can still take from this, whether he's talking about 490 or 77, he's trying to put a number that is way out there so that you won't think any longer about how many times do I actually have to do so because the number is supposed to be so high that you can't even count that high. So Jesus could have said, no, 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 Peter, not seven times, but seven million billion times. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Put a number so far out there that you can't count that high. Now, I know the tendency of our heart is to get out a notebook, you know, my sin notebook or whatever, and you just start keeping pages on people. That's number five, Todd, that you bothered me. Sally, that's number nine, or whatever. I got a book here. And some of us are thinking, Danny, how to create a, an app on our phones, or whatever here, to make it nice and convenient, touch, you know, and all that kind of stuff. If that's what you're thinking, Danny, you've missed the point. Danny's a good brother. He would never. His point is not to keep track and then finally let the person have it. His point is rather to forgive and to forgive again and to forgive again and to forgive again and to keep on forgiving until it becomes a pattern of your being. Because if you forgive that many times, pretty soon forgiveness becomes second nature. Christians should be among the most forgiving people on the planet. 
We should be the most forgiving people at our places of business where we work. We should be the most forgiving people at our dormitories where we live. We should be the most forgiving people in our families. And so on and so on and so on. Every environment that we come into, the Christian should be the most forgiving person. Now you say, well, why is that? Well, Jesus thought about that, and he answered it with an illustration. And the illustration begins in verse 23. Notice, again, therefore he throws a parable out there. A kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to do so, one of them owed him 10,000 talents. And since he had no ability to pay, his master said, well, then you and your wife and your children need to be sold to pay something on the debt, and I'll move on with my losses. And the servant fell down on his knees, and he begged him, he implored him, and he said, have pity on me. And the master released him and forgave the debt. We've already read it. I'm just highlighting some of the main points. So he paints this picture. A man owes his master 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was a measure of money, like the dollar or the euro or something like that. It was a a measure of money. 10,000 talents is something like, and there's differing numbers that are out there, so I tried to put like a middle number of what is out there. It's something like $75 million. Do any of you have $75 million lying around? Bill Shea, of course, we all know. All righty here. Some commentators have even suggested it's as high as a billion dollars. So I've tried to take a low number here of what is out there. Again, Jesus is taking a number that is so high that it's obvious the guy will never be able to pay. He's talking about a debt that is impossible to pay. A slave would never be able to pay a debt, whether it was $10 billion or $75 million or even a billion dollars. And so Jesus, he points it out. Look, verse 25, and he says, And since the man could not pay, there was no way that he would be able to pay $75 million dollars. And so the man says he has to be sold. The solution there for this master, for this king in the parable, is to sell the man and his entire family and to at least get some money here. They're probably not going to be sold for $75 million, but he can at least get some of his debt back through the sale of this person and his family. And so the fellow, as you would be, desperate, owing a debt he could never repay, Even in a multitude of lifetimes, his slave is never going to be able to pay that amount of money. The man instead goes to the only recourse that he thinks he has left. He cries out for mercy, and he cries out for patience. He says in verse 26, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And remarkably, I know know it's a story, but remarkably, the king hears the plea. And he not only extends to the servant. Now, the guy's prayer was, just give me more time. And he goes way beyond give him more time, he wipes out the debt altogether. He says, don't worry about it. You don't owe me anything anymore. The man's plea for mercy moved the heart of the king. You're talking about $75 million. What a remarkably generous thing for this king to do. Now, the parable, though, is not done. Jesus continues in verse 28, and he says, now the same servant wiped the tears from his eyes and finished hugging the king and all that, and he went out. And he came across a fellow that owed him money. Notice it says, a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him and and saying, pay what you owe. So Jesus continues the parable by saying, the the same servant who owed $75 million, 10,000 talents, went out from there and demanded of another person that owed him money, and he said it was a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii, the comparison there well let me before we get to that notice a couple things he goes out and here's how he collects the debt it's in painting this picture jesus says he seizes him that's violently and he begins to choke him saying pay me what you owe seems pretty harsh doesn't it especially for a guy that was just forgiven of a huge debt against himself he owed as i said 75 million dollars the man owed him 100 denarii, which is somewhere about $25,000. Now, that's a lot of money, $25,000, but it's not $75 million. And he was forgiven $75 million and was grateful for doing so, and he was especially violent and harsh against the guy that owned him just a small portion of that amount. One would think that a person that was forgiven as much as he had been forgiven, that he would be very willing to forgive someone that owed him a mere pittance in comparison. You would think that. 
And notice the second servant cries out for mercy and patience. So he says, Give me, pay me what you owe me. You owe me 25 grand. I want my money. Choking him in the process. Now notice how that man responds. This fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, and said, have patience with me. I will repay you. Pretty similar, isn't it, to what he himself had said a little bit earlier. Look at verse 26. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. It's exactly the same. And that should have, you know, jogged something in the man's mind of, you know, I've been in the same place myself, understanding. Surely this man wouldn't forget the debt that he was forgiven and the mercy that he was shown. And surely he would forgive the fellow servant who owed much, much less. And of course, we have to answer, surely not. Look at verse 30. He refused, he went, and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, the behavior, verse 31, shocks the other servants. It says that they're watching all of this. They saw what happened before. They're seeing what happened after. They were greatly distressed. Ultimately, it leads them to report the matter to their master, as it says in verse 31. And the parable could have stopped there, and I think every one of us would have got the point. We would have understand what Jesus is saying. If you've been forgiven so much, you should forgive as well. But Jesus here will go on, and just in case we miss the point, notice in verse 32, he says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not, this is probably what we should underline in the context of today's study, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And then he says, so also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so we go back to Peter's original question, which is in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? It doesn't say have, I add that in there. And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus doesn't actually say this. But I think if he were to offer a quick response, he might say something like this to Peter. Tell you what, Peter, you forgive others up to the number of times I've forgiven you. And then we'll call it even. I think that would be a quick, simple response from the Lord without going into this parable here. As I said earlier, Christians should be among the most forgiving people of the planet. Whether we're talking about our place of business or our college dorms or classrooms or all those things or in our families or whatever it may be, we should be the most forgiving people because we are keenly aware of the debt that we ourselves have been forgiven. And not only of a debt, that was forgiven, that said, you know what, don't even worry about it anymore. Let's just forget it never happened and let's move on. Not only that, but we were, our debt was paid. It wasn't just put aside by a rich guy who didn't care about the 75 million. Our debt was actually paid by another in our place, which of course we know is the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Many years after this encounter, almost three decades later, Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, he would write some very telling words about, I think, the way that the Lord used this teaching in his life many years later. And he would write this, speaking of Jesus, he would say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 30 years later, somewhere in that period of time, Peter had come to know that not only was his debt forgiven, but that it was paid off entirely by another. Not a debt of a few million dollars or even many millions of dollars, but the debt of his sins. He had come to know that that debt was paid off by another and that it was a debt that he could never pay on his own. As we know, the Apostle Paul said that the wages of sin is death. And Peter had come to discover that there was another that paid that debt for him and that truly by that other's sacrifice, his wounds, his sin problem was healed. And so Peter, Christian, brother and sister here, 2,000 years later, how many times should you forgive other people? And I would just leave you with this. Let it be the same amount that you yourself have been forgiven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that's easier to say than it is to do. And Lord, as we think about even the earlier part of our study this morning, we know that it's easier sometimes to just break off relationship. There's plenty of other people I can hang out with. I don't have to bother. And yet we know the damaging effect 
Lord, of unforgiveness and of bitterness just sort of lingering within our hearts and how it's like a chain that we ourselves just sort of hook up to the, the wall or whatever that prevents us from really moving forward. And, and Lord, in your wisdom, you've been so kind to give us these instructions for our good. And so, Father, as we uh, process these things this morning, I pray that we would ever be mindful also that that which seems to be and may be humanly impossible, that which is humanly impossible, that because of the work of Christ on the cross, you have made possible for those that name the name of Christ. Lord, that you've broken the power of sin in our lives and you've filled us with your Holy Spirit. And everything that you call us to do, every command that you have for us, like going and asking for forgiveness or asking to, or seeking to be reconciled with another, that everything, every command you've called us to do, you've enabled us to do as well. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that truth. Lord, I pray for us as a body of believers, Lord, that you would bless this fellowship. And Lord, that you would guard us and you'd protect us from the enemy seeking to divide us in any way. Lord, that each of us here, we would fully recognize each one of us are sinners. We know that. And we know that in sharing life together, there's going to be times where we sin against one another intentionally or unintentionally. And Father, I just pray that you would put a burden within each of our hearts to live out these words as you've intended for us to live them out. And to interact with one another in humility, ever mindful of the great debt that we ourselves had been forgiven. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.